Heirs of King Jesus, united for the kingdom, empowered to live in victory, called to live righteously, clothed in the finest armor, more radiant than jewels, we are royals. Good morning. Good morning, morning, morning. Come on. Uh, it is a good morning. Uh, you know, we're digging in this week into week five of our series that, as the video so eloquently puts it, is called Royals. And some of you have already probably figured this out over the past four weeks. Um, but this is a series on the book of Ephesians. And quite simply, throughout this series, we, we decided over the summer to, to take the book of Ephesians, this, this beautiful letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and to start to explore it, to, to break it down, to talk about what Paul was saying to that church and how that applies to our life today. And throughout this series, really, we believe that the book of Ephesians can be summed up with this statement, we are royals. That is who we are. That is who God says we are. See, over the past couple weeks, we've talked about this idea that God chose us. Like, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1 says, God chose you to be holy and blameless before him, to be adopted into his family. God is the king. So if you are part of God's family, that automatically makes you a prince or a princess. It's pretty cool. We are royals. And then we've also talked about how as royals, we have access to hope, inheritance, and power. How God came and he wasn't just content being like, okay, cool, here's a sticker that tells you that you are more important than you thought you were. He's like, no, 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 here, you're my child. Let me give you everything you need to live out this royalty. And we've talked in Ephesians 2 and 3 how we didn't earn this royalty. This wasn't something like you were born into the royal family, so you're royalty. Yay, cool. No, no, God chose. When you didn't deserve it, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made us alive. We are royals because God chose us, God adopted us, and God said, even in the midst of their brokenness, I love them so much, I'm going to bring them into my family. And I love this idea because it talks about how we have acceptance with our Father. You know, often people look for acceptance in the world. Friends, family, you know, people-pleasing. Sure, nobody in this room tries to please people ever. We're all perfect like that, I know. People-pleasing, trying to find acceptance, find a place, find people who will make us feel accepted. Often we look for identity in the world and in the things that we do or what we like or our hobbies. It's like, oh, well, you know, I like to play board games, so my identity must be I'm a nerd, automatically. 
Or, you know, I work at a church, so my identity is I'm a pastor, and that's it, you know. Picture, like, you know, the perfect person in the entire world, and that's me. It's a lie. That's not me. I'll be real. But we look for identity in, in things we do, things people say about us, things that we like, but God wants to give us our identity. And the beauty of this letter is Paul has revealed we have acceptance from the Father. We have an identity from the Father. It's that you are royalty. And beyond that, you have a purpose. As royalty, God has chosen you. And he's given you everything you need in order to walk out the new life that he has called you to. We are royals. But, you know, as we talk about this idea of being royals, of being part of God's royal family, the natural question that kind of arises, at least in my head, is what does it actually look like to be part of God's royal family? You see, in families, often there are different standards or expectations that family members have for one another. For example, in my family, I learned this the hard way when I moved out here from Ontario for Bible college, and I didn't call or text my mom nearly as much as I should have. My mom set very firm expectations. If you're part of this family, you're going to call me at least once a week. It's just, you know expectations. As a family, we love each other. We care for each other. That means you communicate. It's just, you know, one of my family's expectations. But when it comes to God, when it comes to being part of God's family, what are the standards? What are the expectations that God has for us as his children? So what I want to dig into this morning as we move forward in the book of Ephesians is is this idea of God's standards for for his royal family. I want to talk to you about the ways of royalty. The ways of royalty, what it looks like to be royalty. You know, in week one of this series, Spencer kicked us off Um, fantastic message, by the way. If you missed, actually, if you missed any of the last four weeks, check them out. It's, we're we're basing it on the book of Ephesians, so if you miss one part, you might miss something that that will build and build and build. But anyways, week one of the series, Spencer started the message with this funny story of his grandparents and how they love the royal family. Now, personally, I don't know, maybe you can relate to me, um, I barely know the king's name. I think it's Charles. I could be very wrong. No idea. I don't care about the royal family at all. And Spencer was telling the story of how after the royal wedding, whenever that was, um, his grandfather called him and was like, did you watch the wedding? No? Here, let me describe it to you in great detail. I was just sitting there as Spencer was telling the story. I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm like, I like weddings. I like going to weddings when I know the people. I will never watch a wedding on TV unless you're like close family. Even then I would rather be there. And I absolutely do not want anyone to ever describe to me in great detail how a wedding looked. Just, I'm just being real. But I thought it was adorable though. 
how these people were so enamored with this family that they probably have never seen in real life and never met. That they were just, oh, it just, oh, in awe. Like, oh, look, the royal family's doing this. The royal family's doing that. For someone like me, doesn't really matter. I don't care. It doesn't make sense, but I love their passion. And as I was thinking about this, though, I was thinking about the reality that people who belong to a royal family, like let's say the British monarchy, if you belong to the British royal family, there are expectations and standards that you are expected to uphold. You know, the whole prim and proper thing, know which fork to eat when there's 15 on the, on the table, you know, that kind of thing. You can fold your napkin in your lap, uh, the kind of thing my mom tried to teach me. I didn't learn very well. Um, but there's, there's standards. It's like when you're royalty, if you're having a wedding, you don't go down to the little tiny wedding chapel in Vegas to get married in front of a judge in five minutes with two witnesses. No, you don't do that. You have a parade, you have a party, it's extravagant, you invite half the country, there's, there's, there's a, it's, it's televised. There's expectations that are placed on royalty because royalty knows people are watching them. And so they want to walk in a way that is worthy of the title that they have as royals. And you know, as we dig into Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, I believe this is the point that Paul is trying to start getting across. Like the first three chapters, we've really dug into who we are, our identity. We are royals, period. Three chapters, you are royals. You are royalty. Now that you got it, Paul's kind of shifting gears. And he's starting to look at what it actually looks like to act as royalty. What are the ways of royalty? And so he starts chapter 4 with this phrase. He says, he says this, I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord. So this is Paul. He's writing to the church of Ephesus from prison in Rome. And I love that he starts this way because I'm, this is me completely reading into this passage. I'm sure this wasn't his, his intention, but he's like, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. So if you don't listen to me, I've got nothing better to do than to write a whole bunch of letters. <laughs> it's just how I read the Bible sometimes. I read myself into it. Um, sure, that's not what he was meaning. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love that first verse. I beg you. Paul's not like, hey, I request that you might possibly consider doing this. He's like, I am begging you. If I could be there, I would be on my hands and knees with hands folded and be like, please do this. I beg you to walk. Now the word there for walk in the Greek is literally meaning in everything you do. It's talking about the walk of life as in every decision you make, in every word you speak, in everything you do, walk, talk, act in a manner worthy 
of the calling to which you've been called. Now, the calling that Paul is talking about, we know from the context, is salvation. That Jesus has called all of us back to him. That when we believe in him, we are saved. That is the calling. And Paul is saying, I beg you that in everything you do, you would walk in a manner worthy of the royalty that Christ has given you through faith. I beg you to walk in a manner that is worthy of your station as a prince or princess in the kingdom of God. That when people look at you, they won't be like, you're royalty? You don't act like it. But people would be in awe. Oh, you're royalty. Walk in a manner worthy that when people see you, they will automatically know there's something different. They must be royal. They must be someone special. And then Paul, fortunately, he begins to expand on this idea. Like, it's one thing if Paul's like, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, cool, end of letter, we're done. But it's another thing when he starts to actually dig into it and to explain, yeah, this is what I mean. So what does he say? He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, it's the first thing, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity. These are the ways of royalty, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our royalty, which means we would be humble. That simply means you wouldn't promote yourself above others. You know, humility, C.S. Lewis put it this way, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. Instead of thinking of your selfish desires or your ambitions, that you wouldn't promote yourself first, but you would put others first. That's humility. Gentleness. The word in the Greek, it actually, the, the, the meaning behind the word is withholding authority. It's that idea of like a king, or let's say, we'll, we'll make it a bit more modern. A, a police officer, you know, has authority. So if they see you doing something wrong, they can arrest you or, you know, write you a ticket or whatever, right? Gentleness is the idea of withholding authority. That when someone does something bad to you, instead of dropping the hammer on them and getting revenge, you withhold authority, you withhold power, you treat them with gentleness, with patience. It's a virtue that I really struggle with. It means long-suffering, waiting. Specifically, the Greek term, it's still talking about when somebody hurts you. That instead of immediately going, oh, they hurt me, I'm going to get revenge. How can I get them back? You wait. You sit back, you take a step back until your, you know, vengeance, anger kind of settles. And then you approach them in order to restore the relationship. Because bearing with one another 
in love. Speaking of unconditional love. Love that is not based on how somebody treats you or what somebody thinks of you. It's a, a love that is not based on anything. It's just the simple fact, you're a human, I'm a human, I'm going to love you. Gentleness, humility, patience, and love. And then he talks about unity, which is quite simply the idea that there should be no divisions. See, God created us as humans to have a relationship with one another, and often when people hurt us, our tendency is to put up a wall. And so I'm here, you're there, you hurt me, you stay over there, don't come close. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The ways of royalty is, yeah, they hurt you. Don't give them opportunity to hurt you again, but work to restore the relationship so that you will be united, so that there will be no divisions among you. But why? Why is this unity so important? Why must we walk in the ways of royalty? Why must we do all these things? Well, fortunately, Paul keeps going. He says, because there is one body. That's the body of Christ. We, as the church, are the body of Christ. The church isn't made up of a bunch of organizations that are registered with the CRA and all those things. No, no, no. The church is made up of the people. There is one body. The church, us. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Just as you are called to the, say it with me, one hope of this calling. I lost my place. <laughs> You're called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, Jesus. One faith, faith in Jesus. One hope of your calling. Or, I'm losing my place. I'm sorry, guys. One baptism. There's so many ones in this passage. <laughs> One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. One. 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 We act as royalty and we treat others, we're acting in the ways of royalty, treating others properly because we are part of one family that is united around one God. And I love the idea, Paul just, one, 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 one. He kind of gets like a little bit annoying with the use of the word one, but it's just continual, one, there is one, there is one. And it's like, just in case, maybe you thought there was more than one family of God. Maybe like there's one for Europeans and one, one for Canadians because we're so holy, you know, um, and one for Asians and one for Africans. No, 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 Paul's like, no, no, there's one family of God. And just in case, you know, some people are still like, uh, well, maybe there's more than one way to, to get to God. Maybe there's more than one way to climb the mountain and reach God. No, no, no. Paul's like, no, no, there's one way. In case we just thought, you know, perhaps maybe there's more than one God or more than one, one being in charge of the universe. No, there is one God. We act and we follow the ways of royalty because we have been united in one family under the authority of one Father, one Spirit, and one Lord. We are royals. 
All of us are royals. And we all belong to the same family of God. So Paul says, act as a royal. Act as a royal. And really the idea of what he's getting at here, it's the reality that you know, when you became part of God's family, you didn't automatically know everything you now have access to. When you became a part of God's family, you weren't automatically perfect. I wish that's how it worked. Can you imagine? It's like, believe in Jesus, boom, you're a perfect person. That would be amazing. It's not how it works. But Paul's point is, when you joined the family of God, you were a toddler. An annoying, fussy toddler. I'm just being real. They're great birth control. Adorable, but still. It's like you were a kid. You were young. And just as you don't expect a toddler to act perfectly, as you have to teach them, and help them as they grow up to make the right decisions and to grow into maturity. Paul's point is, hey, when you became royalty, you were an infant too. So let me show you what it looks like to grow up into maturity in the royal family of God. And then as Paul makes this point, he kind of flips the, the script again. He starts, now that he's kind of shown us what it looks like to be royalty, and don't worry, he's going to expand on it a lot more. I think every week of this series until uh, September is going to be on this idea of the ways of royalty because Paul really just, he's very wordy. Did you know Ephesians is basically a bunch of run-on sentences tagged onto each other? Like he's, thank God for translators putting periods and punctuation and things because it's just Oh my goodness. Um, but he goes on to express, okay, now that we know that you are royalty, we've talked about that for three chapters, now that you understand at least a little bit of what royalty looks like, of the ways of royalty, he starts to explain the purpose, why we are royalty, and remind us of what Jesus did for us. And he says this, verse 7, it says, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we'll pause there for a second, because sometimes people read into that verse, and we see the word grace, and we immediately think salvation. And then people read into it, and they're like, oh, Jesus gives different measures of salvation to different people. Like, if I'm holy, I'm going to go to the first heaven. But if you're less holy than me, you're going to go to the second heaven or, you know, something stupid like that. That's not the case. When Paul is talking about grace here. He's specifically talking about grace in terms of calling. God has given different measures of grace in order to serve his church according to the measure of Christ's gift. Which in a moment, we'll look at, we'll look at it in a moment, but the Christ's gift is people. So it's not salvation. And he goes on, he says, Therefore it is said, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, 
He made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. You might be like, okay, my goodness, that's a lot of descended and ascended, and oh my goodness, what are you saying, Paul? Quite simple. That Jesus, he was in heaven. And then God said, hey, I love my kids so much. They're going through a rough time. They're struggling with sin. They can't find freedom on their own. I need you to go down to earth, Jesus, to deal with it for them. But Jesus came and he was born as a human. He took on human likeness, Philippians 2 says. He became like us. And then he went and he took our sins upon himself and he died on a cross. And after he rose again, he ascended back into heaven. Jesus is the one who descended from heaven to bring salvation and hope and life to us. But once he had accomplished that task, he ascended back into heaven, and Ephesians 2 tells us he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. With all authority, all dominion, and all power. Jesus is the one who descended and ascended again. And he did it so that he might make captivity a captive. That means that those of us, which is all of us, who are captives, that he might break us free, might set us free, might break off the lies, he might break off the addictions, he might break off the sin and release us into new life. Made captivity a captive. He set us free from the law and from sin. And he gave good gifts to his people. Now, if you're like me, and around Christmas time, when you see gifts under the Christmas tree, you're just like constantly curious, like what on earth is under the tree? Ooh, that one has my name on it. What could it be? This box is not very big. I don't remember buying anything this size. If you're like me, you might be wondering, okay, cool. Jesus gave gifts. What are the gifts, Paul? Like, I want to open this Christmas present now. Well, it goes on. The gifts that he gives, he himself, Jesus himself, granted, these are the gifts, that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. So in theological circles, these are known as the gifts of the Son. You know, 1 Corinthians, 13, or 1 Corinthians 12, we have the gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy and healing and miracles and tongues and faith, all those kinds of things that are gifts that come from the Holy Spirit to empower us to live. But these are known as the gifts of the Son, or in more colloquial terms, the fivefold ministry quite simply, is God's method of church governance. That God has given gifts to his church. The gifts are people. For what purpose? Well, God's smart. 
He knows it takes a long time for us to get the ways of royalty into our thick skulls. And so he called specific people to help guide us on that journey. Now these five terms, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, these are not a hierarchy of sorts. Like, oh, if you're one, then you're better than the rest. Like, no, no, that's not the case. And these are also not things that each and every person is called to. These are specific individuals that God has called to serve in his church in different ways. But we could describe them quite simply in this way. You see, an apostle, an apostle is an old Roman term that was used, basically, Rome would go, they'd have their big armies and their legions, and they'd go and they'd be like, hey, I like your land, we're going to take it from you. And there'd be a war, and Rome would win, and they would take over this new land, and then they'd be like, huh, this land is really cool, I hate your culture. Let me replace your culture with mine. And so what Rome would do is they would gather groups of people, and they would send them in ships led by an apostle to establish the culture of Rome in their new territory. In the same way, an apostle is someone who has been called by God to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth, to establish the culture of God's kingdom here on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. A prophet is another term for a seer. Now, apostles and prophets, when the Bible was first being written, they would write portions of the Bible. That's not the case anymore. Apostles established God's kingdom, though. But a prophet is a seer. They're somebody who receives God's voice. We can all hear God's voice, but prophets are people who have been specifically called to hear God's voice, to release God's voice upon other people. And the key thing, the purpose of all this, is to equip the saints for the works of ministry. See, gifts of the Spirit, we have the prophetic gift. Gifts of the Son, we have a prophet. The difference is one is a gift, one is a calling. We can all prophesy with the power of the Spirit, but not everyone is called to be a prophet. Third, evangelists. These are people, quite simply, who have been specifically called by God to go out, find people who don't know Jesus, and bring them to faith. Like, again, we have all been called to evangelize but an evangelist is someone who has been specifically called to evangelize and to teach us to do the same. Pastor, well, we're very familiar with that term. We call everyone pastors. But pastor is a shepherd, someone who tends, takes care of, looks after the church. And a teacher will just picture a university prof or whatever, somebody who has a lot of knowledge, searches for a lot of knowledge, releases a lot of knowledge, and helps us understand. It's a teacher. And this is the five-fold ministry. Now, if that's still a little bit confusing, I, I understand. It's, it, it's a weird concept. Uh, it can be hard to, to put into or to understand fully. Um, but I, 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 let me explain it this way. I read this in a book. It's uh, a couple years ago by a guy named Danny Silk. He wrote a book. It's called uh, Culture of Honor. I think that's the name of it, something to do with honor. Um, but it's a, it's a book all about the ways of royalty, how royalty acts with honor 
We don't dishonor other people. We treat others with honor, even if they dishonor us. But in the book, he talks about uh, this, this idea of the fivefold ministry, and he describes it in terms of a car crash. So this is my revision of what he said because I didn't feel like reading it. Um, if we imagine the five-fold ministry in terms of there's a car crash, and right after the crash happens, five people from the local church show up. So the first person out of the car is the pastor. They see people that are hurting. They're like, let me out. Let me get at them. Let me help them. It's like pulling people out of the wreckage, making sure people are safe, tending to their wounds. What's your name? How are you hurting? Oh, your leg hurts? Let me write that down so that when the paramedics come, I know what to do. Oh, do you have family members? Oh, I can call them. Don't worry. Like they, they're doing all this stuff to make sure the people are cared for. A teacher, they're the second one out of the car. And they go, and they're not, they're like, okay, pastor's got the people. That's great. How did this accident happen? Let me look. Oh, look, the, the skid marks. It's a little wet out. Maybe it was hydroplaning. Ooh, there's a cell phone on the passenger seat. Hmm. I wonder who was texting. And they're piecing things together. Pastor's dealing with the people. The people are being taken care of. The teacher is piecing things together. Next one out of the car is, is the evangelist. And they're going out now that people's physical safety has been taken care of. They're going out and they're looking after their spiritual well-being. It's like, hey, what's your name? Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, Mr. Pastor there, Mrs. Pastor there really helped you. That's great. Do you know Jesus? <laughs> like, if you were to have died in this car accident today, where would you go? And they're just, they're looking after the spiritual well-being better than I can do. Like, that would be the wrong way to actually bridge that topic, but, you know, that's why I'm not an evangelist. Um, next one would be the prophet. Prophet gets out of the car. They're not worried. They had a dream this was going to happen last night. And in the dream, no one died. So they're not worried. <laughs> Whatever. So they go out. They start rebuking the spirit of death in the place. And they start going to the individual people. And as God speaks to them and speaks life and hope and identity and reveals to the prophet how he sees these people, the prophet relays it. This is your destiny. God, show me that you dealt with this abuse as a kid. Yeah, guess what? God was with you in that. That was not his intention. That was not his design. That was not what he wanted. But he was there for you. Begin to speak life and hope and truth and identity and purpose, relaying what the Father is revealing to them, to the people. And the last one out is the apostle. Now that people are cared for, people believe in Jesus, people are hearing from God who, who they are, from the prophet, the apostle is coming out to pray for the sick to release the kingdom of heaven on earth. And they're looking at the situation. Yeah, in heaven there's no car accidents. In heaven there's no broken legs or broken ribs or texting while driving or hydroplaning. In heaven none of this would have happened. So they go around and they start to release the power of heaven here on earth 
to pray for the sick, to tell testimonies of other car accidents where they've seen people just be miraculously healed. And as faith builds in the area, people are getting up and they're walking. People who, who have not been able to move are moving. Things are happening as God reveals himself in power. By the end of this, this hypothetical carload of five people from the local church as they drive away, everyone involved in the car accident now knows their identity, their destiny, they believe in Jesus, they've been cared for, and they've been healed because God came through and worked through his church. So that's the fivefold ministry. Now, I know that some, there's some people who you might be looking at this and be like, aren't apostles and prophets no longer around? And that's because, you know, there, there's this fallacy in church world sometimes that the gifts of the Spirit are dead. It's this whole idea that when the disciples of Jesus died, well, the Spirit, or Holy Spirit stopped healing, he stopped speaking, he stopped doing anything, and suddenly all the apostles and the prophets, they died out. But we know as a church that the gifts of the Spirit aren't dead because we're constantly seeing people healed in this building. Like I just, I was talking to some people this morning who dealing with cancer, the cancer is shrinking through prayer. Inflammation disappearing through prayer. People who have been far from God and been prayed over for, for tens and tens of years are suddenly coming to faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is powerful and he wants to work in his church. But when we look at the fivefold, how can I be sure that this is still in effect today? How can we know for sure that the fivefold ministry didn't die out and now everyone's just pastors? Okay. Well, let's look at the purpose. So Jesus granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body. Okay, so that's the function. The point is not hierarchy. The point is not to be like, oh, look at me. Look how holy I am. I'm a pastor. No, point is to equip the saints for the works of ministry. That's all of us. Until, I love this, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Last time I taught on this verse briefly in, in a group I ran a couple months ago. And last time I taught on this verse, I asked a very simple question. I'm going to ask it again today. How many of you think that the global church is united? This <laughs> is the same reaction I got last time. People laughed at me. And how many of you feel that if Jesus was standing right here beside you, you would be exactly a perfect representation of him? Okay. So Paul said the fivefold ministry is in place equipping the saints for the works of ministry until we all come to unity and until we are all mature and measure up to Jesus. So if there's no unity and we don't all measure up to Jesus, then I propose to you that the fivefold ministry is still around today. Now you might be saying, okay, great. 
talking about ways of royalty, we act like royalty. What, like, I don't understand. Why is Paul talking about the fivefold ministry? Why are you talking about this? Well, the point is that Paul knew we are all children. We are spiritually immature children. And Jesus, he's smart. Guess what? He's a lot smarter than you are. And he looked and he's like, okay, these people are not going to get it. So I'm going to choose specific individuals to help them, to help guide them, to help teach them, to help them mature so that my church will be united and mature. And then Paul, he wraps up this passage, verse 14. He says, we must no longer be children. That's the point. You are a child. Let's grow up. Let's grow up. Let's no longer be children. How do children act? Tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. Reality is, there are people out there who are going to try to abuse your belief system for selfish gains. And they will try to convince you of lies. Like, oh, yeah, this, this word of God, yeah, it's the word of God until it comes to certain topics that culture disagrees with. And in that situation, you should defer to culture over God's word. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's childish. Don't be deceived by their schemes. Grow up. Grow up. He, he actually says that in the very next verse. He says, we no longer be children blown about by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Christ. Say that with me. Grow up. Grow up. Grow up. You're a child. Grow up. Grow up into maturity. If you're like, that seems very harsh. Well, don't take it up with me. Take it up with Paul. <laughs> Speaking the truth in love, that means when somebody comes at you and it's like, no, 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 that's not the word of God because culture says this and you need to agree with what I, my interpretation or what culture says. When you recognize someone's deceitful schemes, you don't treat them with the same. You don't treat them with hatred. You speak the truth in love. Like, oh, yeah, I get it. I get why you think that. But this is what the Word of God says. And so I'm going to hold to the Word of God. Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. I think it's in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how we are all different parts of the body. We're all different parts of the body of Christ. You might be an eye, somebody else might be a fingernail, it's okay. We're all equal. You might think the eye is better than the fingernail, but it's not. We are all the body of Christ and we must all work together in unity. United in the family of God so that the body might grow. 
See, I think the whole point of what Paul is getting at, really the whole point of this message is this idea of you are royalty. But when God looked at you and you were just in the gutters, you were a pauper, you were, had nothing, you were hopeless, you were dead, as, for, as Ephesians 2 says. When, Paul, or when God looked at you and he saw you there, and he pulled you out of that gutter and he made you a prince or a princess. Now that God has taken you out of that and he's brought you into royalty, the whole point is you didn't automatically become perfect. You're a child. You might be an 80-year-old child. That's okay. What Paul is trying to tell us is here's what royalty looks like. Here's what it looks like to grow up, to become mature, to become an adult in the royal family of God. We are royalty. So let's learn the ways of royalty. Let us grow up into maturity into gentleness and patience and humility and love. Let's grow up in unity. That when somebody hurts us, we don't push them out of our lives, but we seek reconciliation, even when they don't want it. Even when they badmouth you to your family behind your back or on Facebook, you still seek reconciliation and unity. And Paul tells us that Jesus gave specific individuals to help us on this journey so that we're not trying to grow up on our own. But rather, God in his wisdom has equipped specific people to help us on the journey so that we will all learn the ways of royalty. So as we close... What I want to encourage us to do is quite simply to spend a little bit of time receiving from our Father. Listening to our Father. You know, I believe that God is a good Father. He loves His children. He wants to speak to us. And often the struggle isn't that He's not speaking. The struggle is that we're not listening. God can speak to us in many different ways. He can, he can speak to us through, through creation, through other people, through leaders and churches and messages. He can speak to us in, in, in all of these different ways through his word. But God also wants to speak directly to us into our minds. He gave us an imagination. He gave us a brain that is able to think because he wants to relate to us and to speak to us. So as we close, I just want to encourage us to take some time to listen for God's voice. Recognizing that God's voice will always be loving. That's just who he is. He will not act contrary to his character. That God will always glorify Jesus. He will never say something bad about Jesus. And God will always speak in line with scripture. He will never contradict himself. We're just going to take a moment, if I can get everyone just to close your eyes for a moment. 
and ask your heavenly Father, how have I been acting like a child and misrepresented your royalty? How have I been acting like a child? And then as a follow-up, ask him, what are you calling me to do in order to grow into maturity, in order to live out the identity and purpose that you have given me? I challenge you, listen to his voice and obey him. Let him speak to you. Let him reveal who you are, who he created you to be. Let him reveal the little flaws, the little faults, the little things he wants to work on, not as a, not as a bringing a hammer down or condemnation or punishing you, but so that we might all grow together. Listen to his voice and be obedient to follow what he says. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you that when we are immature and childish, you don't look at us and say, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have chosen them. But rather, you look on us with love. And you say, hey, here, let me help you. Let me help you grow up. So, Father, right now, I just pray for revelation. I pray that people will be able to hear and receive your voice. We silence the voice of the enemy. We silence the voice of the accuser. We silence the voice of anything people have told us that might be distracting us. We silence our own thoughts and we receive from you, God. What do you have for your children? Father, pray that you will reveal to us the ways of royalty. Help us to grow into maturity and into unity. That your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus, I just pray for encounters with you right now. Release freedom and hope. The power of your spirit will come. Will reveal to us the areas we need to grow in help us to walk in the ways of royalty. Pray this in your own.